life is full of good things, full of friendship, opportunities to worship, delight in God, full of uh, wonder and celebration, but life is also complicated. If you've noticed that, I'm sure you have. I have. Life is complicated and complex, and decisions can be hard to make at times. Uh, There are difficult things that we have to face and work through. Sometimes that might be in our employment. Some of you, some of us in this church, some of you, I think, are employed to do some very complicated things, things that other people wouldn't understand, Uh, particularly challenging things mentally that you're given a task to do that very few people could do. Some of us have complicated lives, Sometimes it's daily life that's confusing. And and those of us who've, probably my age and older, have have noticed a shift in the way we handle information these days. It took me years to grasp the fact that I couldn't any longer recommend to my children that they went and looked something up in a book if they wanted to know anything. Because they'd look at me as if I was the most stupid man on earth. Because we had a book less than two meters away. But it was better to go to the computer, turn it on, wait, and load it up, and look something up there. And now, of course, it's all on a phone. So the, the way we access information these days is so different to how it used to be. I used to enjoy going, a bit weird maybe, but I used to enjoy going and reading a set of encyclopedias, not the whole thing, just dipping in and out randomly, and seeing what articles I could find and read and discover, because I like knowledge. But now, if I want to know something, I just turn my phone on and do a quick search, and Almost the world's libraries are mine, within a moment. And it's incredible, the amount of information you can find and access. It's absolutely amazing. For, for, for many people, the, this kind of information overload is a wonderful world of opportunity, and yet for others, it's, it's a paralyzing confusion. As there's so much information to sift through and work through, we think, well, how do I find my way? How do I navigate my way through life? If you're at the end of a career or you're retired... Choosing a career might seem to be an easy thing to do, but for others who are starting out or coming to a time of transition, navigating that transition can be really hard. I realized years and years ago that most jobs that exist in the world, careers officers have never heard of. We haven't heard of. If we sat and had a few hours and just listed the kind of jobs that you all have, um, some of us would... Many of us would go, what's that to some of the jobs? You know, we kind of get accountant and lawyer and doctor and nurse and teacher and uh, some of those things, but there's so, the world of work is so diverse and people are navigating their way through this on a day-by-day basis. Most people, by the end of their working life, will have had three, four, five careers during that time these days. You don't any longer go to one company for life and follow one career for life, but people are taking major shifts as they're going through life. And that's quite challenging. It requires a different set of skills from how life used to be managed and how we used to approach it. And it's difficult. And we might easily come and and look at these things and say, well, how do we cope? But I want to encourage you today and tell you that God's got a plan. And he's got an answer. There There is an answer. It's an ancient one. It's an ancient answer that God gives for how we should live. And we're going to be looking at a story from 1 Kings Uh, chapter 3 in a moment, but just to set the scene, the story starts in 1 Kings 1, and it tells the story of a king called David, who's been a great king. Far from perfect, but a great king, because he had a heart after God. He he wanted what God wanted. Yes, he made mistakes. Yes, 
he and others suffered as a result of those mistakes, but still, underneath it all, he wanted what God wanted. He outlived rebellion. He outlived being exiled. He outlived attempted murder. And at the time we pick up the story in 1 Kings, he's old, very old. And we read a couple of chapters about some problems where David's son, Adonijah, proclaims himself king. He decides that his father's getting old and he wants to be popular. He wants to be the king. And so he, he just proclaims himself king. It's a trying time for David. It's a, a worrying time for all who are following him. And, and quite a load of people go after Adonijah and they, they begin following him as the new king and proclaiming him the new king. There's a few people that don't, and they go and tell David, and David fulfills a a promise that he'd made previously to choose a different son of his to be king. So whilst Adonijah is proclaiming himself king, David chooses Solomon to be king instead. And he hands control over to Solomon. Solomon takes his seat on the royal throne at a young age. He eventually deals with all those who threaten his position mainly because the people who are threatening his vision trip themselves up and make mistakes themselves. And then we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 3 where Solomon, the successor to David, has made his way to, is making his way to make an offering to God. He's gone to worship, he's gone to delight in God, and, and he's, he's kind of, we're going to read a little bit about the time when Solomon made an offering and, and the time that God showed up to speak to him. And we, and we read this from 1 Kings chapter 3. I hope you can read that on the screen. So it says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and said, and God said, ask whatever you want me to give to you. Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked this. So God said to him, this is the last page, honestly. God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so there will never be, never have been anyone like you, or will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both for wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. 
And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. Interesting story. Let me just go, yeah, let me just go on to there. This is the verse that starts that little passage off, 15 verses. It says there, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. The, the story we just read was about Solomon, this new king, uh, going to a place called Gibeon to make an offering to God, and it was described as a high place. And what is hap- what's happening here, God's temple in Israel hasn't yet been built in Jerusalem. It hasn't yet been established. And so uh, there are people who will end up needing to worship at Jerusalem who are going all over the place to worship. And unfortunately, that gets mixed up. So their worship of God at those high places get mixed up with worship of other Canaanite deities and, and all sorts of things, which is why the prophets often speak against the high places. They often say, don't go and worship at the high places. Go and worship in my temple. But the temple isn't yet built. And so Solomon goes to one of these high places, and he doesn't worship a Canaanite deity. He worships God, and he brings a sacrifice, and God appears to him in this dream. That's the story that's going on in the background here. But this first verse says this, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Now, things are going pretty well for Solomon. He's become king... And he's just managed to make this political alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And up until this point, the pharaohs had never allowed their daughters to marry anybody outside of Egypt. Because they didn't need to. Because they had such political uh, might, such military clout, such financial power that they had no need of an alliance outside of their own nation. But something has shifted. Under David, the kingdom of Israel has grown in such, to such significance and Egypt has diminished that Pharaoh is now looking for an alliance outside of Egypt. Where does he go to? He goes to Solomon, the new king. And he, between them, there comes to this deal that gets brokered, which ends up with Solomon not only getting Pharaoh's daughter, but also ends up with Solomon being given a very strategic city Uh, that's strategic for access from Israel into Egypt and uh, beyond there. So there's quite a... Solomon is being treated really well by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's being sort of brought on side, if you like, and there's this great political alliance that's formed at this point. David has left Israel in a good place. Solomon is in a good place, and now he's got God appearing to him. I really simply want to say this, that if Solomon, who's got foreign leaders coming after him and who's just been given a nation to to rule, cries out to God and says, God, I need wisdom to be able to carry out the job you've given me, and he had all of that bounty and abundance and supply, and he's crying out to God for wisdom, I reckon we need it too. You might not have the same responsibilities. You, you may not yet have had foreign kings coming to you saying, please marry my daughter, my son. You, you may not have had that. You may not have had deals brokered where people are fighting over your attention. Solomon did have, and he cried out. But I think if a man who's as wise as that naturally knows uh, and has accommodated so much and achieved so much and received so much, then if he needs wisdom, we do too. 
Secondly, I want to encourage you from this story that it's actually okay to ask God for wisdom. We're going to see today that wisdom is God's gift to us, that it's God's way of helping us navigate the way through life, uh, making uh, godly and right decisions at those critical intersections of options that we have, making godly decisions day after day, making decisions and knowing the right thing to do day after day after day. That's what the Bible talks about as wisdom. And, and it's okay to ask God for this thing. It's okay to actually come before God and ask him. It's not just Solomon who does this, but actually if we look to uh, the New Testament, to what's described as the New Testament book of wisdom, we come to a book of James. And it says this, If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. You know, I'm realizing more and more as I go through life that I need wisdom more than I thought I did. If people ask me, Stuart, what can we pray for you? My answer is now off pat, unless there's a particular crisis, but my answer is this. Please pray for me that I would have wisdom and courage because I I need both. I want wisdom to know what to do and courage to do what I need to do. Does that make sense? And I just pray for that daily. And so if you are praying for me, please pray for that. Wisdom and courage. Because it's okay to know some stuff, and we'll come up to this in a minute, but to know how to approach life and and how to get a bigger perspective on life. And the right thing to do is actually much harder than just knowing some stuff. And I found myself again and again asking God for wisdom. I suppose I need to just say this, that the reason we ask God for wisdom is because he is the source of wisdom. Proverbs verse, chapter 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you want to be wise, the place to go is not to the encyclopedias. It's not to Wikipedia, as wonderful as that is. It's not onto Google. It's, it's not anywhere else, but it's to God himself. And it's this thing called the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And this, this fear isn't a quaking in God's presence. It's not a, a sense of, I'm just a lowly worm and I might come to God and I'm going to try and pray to him and, and I've got to make him out to be kind of scary and distant from me. That's not what the fear of the Lord is about here. But it's a reverence that's filled with joy that recognizes that God welcomes us into his presence, but that God is God. And we're not. And that's what the fear of the Lord is about. It's incredibly releasing. Because I come to God, and I come to meet with him, and I come to pray, and I'm so thankful that I'm coming to one who's got the answer. Because I haven't. And you haven't. And, And we come into God's presence, and we say, God, I thank you that you have what I need, that you are what I need, that you welcome me to come. I don't need to come scared and quaking, but that fear is a reverence that honors and acknowledges God for being who he is. And when Solomon comes into God's presence, he gives thanks in his prayer. If you had that passage open in 1 Kings 3, he, he looks back and says, thank you, God, for what you have done. Thank you for all that you've done to my father. Thank you for the way you've protected me, but, but I'm only a little child and I don't know how to carry out my duties. Help. And Solomon knows where to go. And he gets that wisdom in spades from God. Thirdly, wisdom and knowledge go hand in hand. 
Solomon says this, So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Uh, Those of you who have read your Old Testament or have worked through the Bible in a year plan this year will know that the Old Testament stories about the kings are told in two places. And so this story is also told in the book of Chronicles. And this is the verse from Chronicles, and it uses slightly different words. It says this, Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Just slightly different, same meaning but slightly different Hebrew words they used. And here, Solomon's saying, give me wisdom and knowledge. And I just really want to leave that on the screen for a moment to, to help us distinguish that wisdom is different from knowledge. I said earlier that I used to delight in going to look at, it was a primary school actually, there'd be a set of children's Britannica, and I used to love just going and flicking through and reading an article for some bizarre reason. Um, but wisdom is very different from knowing stuff. You can know lots and lots and lots of things, but it doesn't make you wise. It doesn't make you able to handle life's permutations and complications, and even just to live well. I've known some incredibly intelligent people, some of whom I wouldn't ask to make me a cup of coffee or make a piece of toast, or certainly not both at the same time, because you'd come out with your coffee buttered and your, your toast would have sugar in, and it'd just be a mess because they're incredibly intelligent, and they know so many things, and it's as if the brain has taken in so many facts that there's no room for anything else. That getting dressed in the morning is too much of a challenge, but asked a a really difficult question, then the answer's there. And I want to just see for a minute that wisdom and knowledge are two very different things. Knowledge has a certain allure. It feels good to know things, especially if other people don't. Doesn't it? You can put your smug face on. Yeah, you can be smuggy muck smug face. With your little happy face there that you know something that somebody else doesn't. And it's great. And it's not just in the pub quiz or whilst you're watching University Challenge or Mastermind and you get a question right that they don't know and you go, come on! I did it! For, one, for once. <laughs> on that one rare moment. No, no, but wisdom is... It's not just knowing stuff. You see, in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge has a wonderfully self-inflating quality to it. You know, you take in a bit of knowledge and you go, feel better already. Another bit of knowledge, pass another exam, get another qualification, another few letters after my name. And it's wonderful. It's, It's wonderful to be qualified and have actually other people recognize how clever you are. Because you know it already. But to get the qualification is brilliant, isn't it? Because it's just saying, you know, I think you're really clever. And you go, yeah, I know I am. <laughs> and I'm not dismissing qualifications. It's a good thing to do, to have qualifications. But we need to be careful that we don't overplay our hand and value knowledge so much that we downplay wisdom. I was having a conversation last night, and, and I made this observation, which I'll repeat. You can question if this is right or wrong. But I, I reckon there's a load of schools where some incredibly bright pupils would do well to spend an hour with a caretaker to actually learn something about life. Because some of those incredibly bright pupils have a lot to learn still about how life works and some of the basic decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis. And I think some of the caretakers might be able to help with some of that. You know, See, wisdom isn't wrapped up in professorships. It's not 
held in universities alone. Wisdom is not the uh, reserve of those in high position. Wisdom is distributed to those who want to find it, to those who've asked for it, to those who've sought for it. And you don't have to be rich or wealthy or knowledgeable to be wise. I think there's a huge distinction. Now, knowledge is good. I love learning things. In fact, to my own um, destruction sometimes, I love learning things. I can stay up too late reading more stuff to, accommod- to learn more knowledge. And, and I go to bed later than I should, and I've learned some stuff. But if only I had a bit more wisdom, I would go to bed earlier. <laughs> I really would, because that's the wise thing to do. But I want to feed this insatiable desire for knowledge, and, and it actually isn't very wise. There's a time when wisdom needs to kick in, and you go to bed, you get in the night, and you feel much better the next day, and you can do some stuff. Rather than waking up with four hours sleep, having had four hours sleep, and think, oh, I feel a bit rough today. Duh, there's a reason for that. It's good to know things, but knowledge without wisdom is dangerous. Wisdom knows the limits of your own understanding. Wisdom knows what to do. Wisdom knows when you should stop arguing with somebody even when you're right. I think our system is skewed towards knowledge and skill because it's quantifiable and measurable. And we can spot the people who know stuff and can do stuff and we can honor them, but wisdom is a little more intangible. Wisdom, though, is observable. You notice it. Though you may not be able to measure it, you notice it. I'll tell you how you notice it. I think I notice it by when I need, some, when I need to work my way through a difficult issue, I find myself going to talk to people about it at times. When I'm facing an opportunity, sometimes I'll go and talk to people about it. And I think the people I choose to go and talk to about it are wiser than I am. And so I think I've observed something in them that is different to me. And it might not be measurable. It might not be measurable in qualifications or or position or anything else. But there's just something I think, I need to talk this through with you. And maybe you've got folk like that too. That you bounce ideas off. And the reason you're doing that is because you recognize something in them. Something noticeable. If knowledge understands the options that we have and allows us to investigate them and know about them and think them through, wisdom is what knows what's important about making those decisions. Wisdom helps us make the right decisions. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics. I'm sure you have watched some of it. I think knowledge helps you understand how to be good in an event. Skill is the thing that you use to be good at the event, but wisdom is what helps you understand where that event fits in the whole of life. There was an interview that was conducted with two American divers, and some of you will have seen this because it's gone around Facebook a little bit. They didn't win gold, they won silver. And if this video clip works, you'll be able to see their interview. If it doesn't, I've just built you up for a blank screen. Well, let's, let's have a go. So this is what they said in this interview. And we're just we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to dive in front of Brazil and front of the United States, and uh, it's been an absolutely thrilling moment for us. You now have gold, silver, and bronze Olympic medals. How much does this free you up for the individual event? It does. 
it takes a lot of pressure off of me, but um, this this never could have happened without Steel, without him pushing me, without him loving me well, uh, encouraging me, and my wife has just been a solid rock, and uh, I, I couldn't have done it without them. Well, and Steel, for you, your first ever Olympics, first ever Olympic event, how were you able to maintain your composure so well? I think the way David just described it was flawless. The the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace, it gave me ease, and it let me enjoy the contest. If something went great, I was happy. If something didn't go great, I could still find joy because I'm at the Olympics competing with the best person, the best mentor, the, just one of the best people to be around. Um, so God's given us a cool opportunity, and I'm glad I could have come away with an Olympic silver medal in my first ever event. All right, congratulations to you both. Thank you very much. I don't know if you heard that. The sound quality was awful. That's because it's taken a couple of hours to get that sorted out and transferred into the right format. But uh, the guy was saying there, um, I'm just really pleased that our identity is rooted in Christ. So if this event goes really well, it goes well. If it doesn't, it's still okay because my identity is rooted in Christ. Uh, and when he was asked, you know, how, what's this like? He could have said, oh, we missed out on the gold. We didn't get it. He said, no, it's, it's great, you know. Because wisdom has given them the opportunity to understand and put in perspective the event. Knowledge has enabled... Has somebody just won on one of those machines where you put money in? A little slot machine. I think so. Okay. Alan, we'll give you a hand in a minute to get that sorted out. I think there's just been a pocket emptying. If only it had come before the offering. Those Olympic divers, they had knowledge because they knew what, would it, what it would take to make them win. They had skill to actually enact it. But the wisdom they had helped them put it in perspective. And I trust will mean that their life doesn't fall apart when they go back home. And doesn't, go, doesn't fall apart when they go back home and they're no longer competing. Because for some athletes, it, it comes to an end, doesn't it? You, know, you, you see them and their life is just ended when they've, they've lost that ability to be competitive. Let's move on really quickly. Let's not downplay wisdom anymore in our own lives and our own need of it. I think it's easy as Christians for us to talk about what God has given. We celebrate salvation. We do. If you're not yet following Jesus, you know, I want to recommend it's the greatest way to live. The greatest thing you can do is to say yes to Jesus. Why? Because there's an incredible transition from a life that's lived away from God to the one that's lived with him, which sets you up for an eternal hope. Where, where we can be with God forever. And we tell this story about going to be with Christ when we die, of not fearing death. And all that is true and it's wonderful. But you know, Jesus came to offer life before death as well as life after death. As a church tradition, we believe in miracles. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in testimonies like Magdalena's where God sets people free physically, where he opens eyes that couldn't see before, where he heals limbs that weren't working before, where God brings physical healing. We believe in power, and the Holy Spirit's power. But it's very easy when you're focusing on power and miracles to neglect wisdom. It's easy to talk about spending hours with God and experiencing him in worship and yet forget that most of us have to face daily choices of managing our time and our family and our ambition and our finance and our friends and work and promotion and demotion and redundancy and career change and housing and retirement and all those things and all that information that's coming to us and most of the time, a hope of eternal salvation 
and, and power that's available for miracles isn't necessarily helpful when you're facing some of those choices. I think actually the hope of eternal salvation is the biggest help, but it only comes, can only be applied when, it, when it's used, viewed through the frame of wisdom, when you know that the choices we're making here are actually can be made with an eternal perspective. I think for most of us, wisdom is God's unwanted gift. Many of us have got them. Things at home that you didn't ask for that someone gave you. You've not thrown it out yet because it was given to you years ago. I've known people who've once been given an animal of some type. Uh, I don't know, let's pick an animal, a penguin maybe. Not a real one, but a little model one, and they've had it on the mantelpiece. And you know what happens then? Uh, someone's given them a penguin, it's lovely, and it's on the mantelpiece. Someone else will come around and they go, oh, penguin on the mantelpiece, they like penguins. <laughs> you know what's happening next? People in their kindness and their generosity will, for years, buy this poor person penguins. Until years later, they've convinced themselves that they like penguins, and they don't. And sometimes wisdom can be like an unwanted gift that you, know, you don't really want, and I'm not asking for it, but I want, it to make, I want us today, over these next few weeks, as we're looking at wisdom, and I want to get more practical next week and the one after, just to look at how, how we need wisdom and what God can do in wisdom. You see, Solomon was wise, the wisest man of all the earth, and, and the Queen of Sheba famously came to see Solomon to ask him questions. But Jesus says this at the end of this quote, something greater or someone greater than Solomon is here. When he was talking about himself, Jesus was greater than Solomon, wiser than him. Uh, it says this in Matthew 13, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? When we tell that story, we tend to focus on the miraculous powers, but I want to focus on the wisdom today. Jesus was the wisest man that ever lived. Absolutely the wisest man. He knew what to do in every situation. In all these difficult circumstances, he, he knew what to do. He knew how to respond. And it's not only for him, the Son of God, but this trait is to be looked for in our leaders and others too. This is in Acts chapter 6 when there's a problem in the early church and the apostles tell the people in the church to choose some leaders. And this is what they say. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Look for people who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. You know, just a quick revelation here. It wasn't enough for these leaders to be able to raise the dead. It wasn't enough for them to be able to heal every single sick person that came to them. It wasn't enough for them to be able to preach good messages. It wasn't enough for them to be able to, to do all sorts of things that looked impressive, to cast out demons, to, to see people saved. It wasn't enough for them to be able to prophesy well. It wasn't enough for them to be able to lead worship well. They had to be wise, full of the Spirit and wisdom. And I think we underplay the wisdom. And I want to encourage you. Some of us know we need it. And it's time to respond and ask God for it. So how do we do that as we wrap up? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. You need to simply recognize that you need it. Just say this, you can't trade on the wisdom you used to have once. Some of you will have been told that you are wiser than your years. And that's encouraging at 15 
when you're acting like an 18-year-old. When you're 35 and you still have the wisdom of an 18-year-old, it's not good. You, you can't just bank it. At, at, you've got to move on and keep growing in wisdom. And I want to encourage us today to keep growing, to recognize our need of wisdom, to desire it. Secondly, to come to God. And remember this passage and the encouragement before that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's no better place to find it. Thirdly, to ask. So you ready? First, recognize you need it. Secondly, come to God because he's the source of all wisdom. Thirdly, ask for it. Fourthly, believe. It says here, believe and don't doubt. Just believe that God wants to give you wisdom. He's given a promise here. Finally, some practical steps to add into those. Observe God. When you're taking time with God, observe him. Take time observing your own life and observing others. When I read the book of Proverbs, as I have recently, you know, I realize that a lot of the wisdom that's contained there is observational. Solomon and others are observing life going on around them. They've already observed God, and they're saying, this is what I see happening. And they're drawing wisdom from that. Reflect on God's word and in his presence. You know, it's okay to ask questions of God. It's okay to ask God about life as it unfolds in front of you. And finally, and we'll talk about this another time, associate with wise people. If you want to get wise, hang around some wise people. That's it. So recognize that we need it. Come to God. Ask. Believe. Observe God and others. Reflect on God's word. And get around some wise people. Shall we pray?